Aleluya. Let's pray as we listen to the word of God together on this Palm Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you will open us up to you, our minds, our hearts, let the center of our being be moved towards you so that we, by your grace and with the enabling power of your spirit, will walk by faith and in obedience to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So please um, turn the Bibles to uh, Malachi, the, the, the passage that was just read for us. And let's listen to God's word together. Now sometimes we, and I'm sure that is the experience of many of us, you read one thing in the Bible. You read one thing about God. But it appears in reality, reality in quote, you experience something else. You read that God is good, and yet the experience seems to tell you the opposite. Or at least that he doesn't really care. He's not really interested in certain things. And so sometimes when we are reading the Bible, we read the Bible, we read stories about the Bible, we read events, and let's say it is challenging you about something, and somebody says, but let's be realistic. The idea that perhaps what is being said from God's word written is from a world of fiction. And this is the real world. And so when that's which he says and our experience sort of contradicts one another, be realistic, they say. Because behind that is God doesn't really understand. This is what is going on here. And this is what it says. Our experience is one thing. What he says is another. Now, the people of God in, in Malachi, the people of Israel, you know, at this point, they have returned from exile. They are in the land, the promised land, back again. The temple is being rebuilt. And they have been promised that it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. In fact, Haggai, the prophet, says that the latter glory of this new temple is going to be greater than the former one. It's going to be greater than the temple of Solomon. And so that is the expectation. They come at it with this kind of expectation. But then the experience in the land. At this point, they are still under Persia, ruling in that place, ruling over them. The experience is different from what God actually says. And so they complain, like we do. And they complain like, if there is God, why? If indeed there is God, why this experience? If God is as good as the Bible says, then why do we have these kinds of experiences. It's as if sometimes God delights in evil. Evil happens and it appears he's standing there unconcerned 
we sinned, we sin, and it appears there is no judgment. Even though we say God is just, everything carries on as normal. Now, you know there had been some a later shooting in, is it Nashville, they call it? Nashville? Nashville. Right. In the U.S. A young lady of 28 got assault rifles, entered into a Christian school, a Christian school, through the back door, I was watching it, uh, I think on BBC or on YouTube or something like that, and then decides to shoot through the glass door, gets into the school, and decides to take people's lives. And she takes six people's lives. Three adults, three children. The youngest of those three children, they're of the same age, but I think in terms of man, the youngest of them is a child of a pastor in the neighborhood that somebody I know knows and has met. A pastor, a preacher of the good news. If God is indeed good, why? And that was a question. Some of the questions the people of Israel were asking. What on earth is going on? Where is God in a world of injustice? Where is God? Where is God when 9-11 occurred? Those of you who are old enough to remember when the planes ran into the Twin Towers. Where is God when the fire at Kwame Nkrumah Circle at the petrol station occurred? And 200 and something people were bent. And when they were packing the corpses, they didn't try. There was a little child, I think he or she was with the parents, bent and put on top. Sorry, I'm so graphic. The corpses. Where is God? Where is he? And Malachi says that he comes. Where is he? He's coming. So don't think of our time. Don't, don't think of us at this point. Think of the people. Transport yourself into Malachi's day. Where is God with all that is happening? Where is God amongst us when injustices seem to thrive? And Malachi, God responds through the prophet, God is coming. Oh, and then the people push. You know, in Malachi, they, God says something. They ask him question. I have loved you. Why did you love us? And so he says he comes, and then the question is, when? When is he coming, and where is he going? Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, let me start, let me actually start with verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. It appears so, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And he said, the God of justice, verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He is coming, and where, and when, when, first. He tells us the circumstances that will surround his coming. He will send his messenger. There will be someone who will be a forerunner before the Lord comes. Sometimes when you're driving through Accra and there is motorcade, 
you can determine whether it is a minister of state, the vice president, or the president. Depending on the number of motorcades, and whether there is an ambulance, and the, depending on the number of V8s that follow, and, and so on and so forth. We will know the Lord is coming because he will send his messenger ahead. There will be a messenger. In fact, when you go to chapter 4, he will tell you that that messenger is like Elijah. He will send Elijah. He will send the Elijah-like figure. Someone who will come in the power of Elijah. And he will prepare the way for the Lord. And when is he coming? We are not told the time. He will suddenly come. And the Lord, whom you, whom you seek, will suddenly come. And where is he going? He's going into his temple. He's going to the place of worship where there has been corruption. You remember the Lord Jesus? We won't rush ahead to that. When he comes into Jerusalem, we will look at it in a minute. He goes straight to the temple. And what does he do? He drives people out. The Lord will come. If you think God is condoning injustices, he says, I'm coming. And what are you coming to do? What is he coming to do? Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one. For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier uh, purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offering in righteousness to the Lord. So what is he coming to do? He's going to do two things. We'll see. The first one is that he's coming to purify. When the Lord comes and he goes into his temple, he is coming to purify. He's coming to purify his people. It's a serious event that would occur. He's going to ensure that justice prevails to purify his people. The second thing is he's coming to judge. The Lord will come and judge. And the surprising thing is that the judgment will start with his people. Now let me read for you again verse 2. For he will he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify, purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring an offering in righteousness to the Lord. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you, my people, for judgment. So he is coming just for two things. He's coming to purify. He's coming to make clean. He's coming to make whole. And he's coming to judge. And in some ways, even in the purification, in the making of clean, and in the judgment, we thank God that he says that he's coming like with a refiner's fire. Do you know what happens with a refiner's fire? When you go to the gold refinery, they put a gold, that, that raw thing, into fire. With the hope that all the impurities will be melted off and the gold will come out pure gold. When the Lord comes, he will enter amongst his people and he will ensure that by his fire, 
he separates his people from that which is, appears to be his people, but it is not. But thank God it is a refiner's fire, not the forest fire. You know what forest fire does? It just burns everything. It destroys everything. But God in his mercy, when he comes into his temple, he will purify, he will judge, but he will save as well. He will save a people for himself. Now, something really surprising is here. On the one hand, we are told in um, verse 3 and verse 2 that he is like the refiner's fire. He is like the fullest soap. You know the fullest soap? Those who wash wool, wool from sheep, no matter how dirty it is, they will wash it vigorously and ensure that at the end of the day, the wool as white as snow. Beautiful. So, this Lord, when he comes, he is like that. He will be like the fire. He will be like the soup. At the same time, we are told, verse 3a, he is the one who actually purifies. He will purify. He will sit and make clean the Lord. So, when we are thinking of Hosanna, we are thinking of he who comes and makes purification, makes God's people what they should be, and then passes judgment. He will deal with all impurities among his people. He will not let any sin go and punish. He wouldn't let any sin go and dealt with. And see what will be the result. This will be the result when he purifies, when he judges. Verse 3b. His people will now be able to offer offering, offering in righteousness. Now that they have been purified, now they can become a people who worship God rightly. No wonder the Lord will come into his temple because he is going to restore proper worship. Worship has now been corrupted. Worship is now entertainment. Worship is something else. Worship is celebratism. Worship is commerce. It's about money. Church is now business. It is not only in our day. It is then too. The priests were in it for what they will get. And then he comes there, he judges, he restores everything, and now there is proper worship that can be offered to him. People will live as God's people. Truly. So Hosanna again because the Lord comes. And let me be guilty of repetition. What is he coming to do? He is coming to purify. He is coming to establish justice. What does he mean that he establishes justice? He is going to ensure that God is seen as God for who he is, for what he has done, and related to as such. That is justice. If God created us, isn't it injustice that we turn our backs on him? If God made this world and put us put us in it. Isn't it injustice that we refuse to obey him? Oh, but that will be reversed. There will be justice. And there will not only be justice between us and God in the way we relate with him, but between one another. He is coming to judge and to purify. Now look at verse 5 again. 
Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness. And then he lists a certain, a certain category of sins. The sorceress. Against adulteress. Against those who swear falsely. Against those who oppress hired workers in his wages. Those who oppress the widow and the fatherless. And those who thrust aside the foreigner, the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. When the Lord comes, he says that people like this will be dealt with. Now, you've got to ask the question, are these the only sinners in Israel? No. So what is he trying to do there? Look at the very bottom of verse 5. Look at the very end of verse 5. He is coming to judge those who do not fear me. So these are symptoms of a lack of the fear of the Lord. And what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means realizing who God is and relating to him as such. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It's realizing who he is, what he has done, and relating to him in the light of that. That is the fear of God. The fear of God is not being scared that you run away from him. The fear of God is you recognize who he is and what he has done and you move towards him with humility in faith and repentance. So if these things prevailed, we are indicating that there is no fear of God. And it won't go unpunished, undealt with. He will deal with it. Does God truly care about justice in our world? Does God truly care that we take advantage of the poor in our society? Does God truly care that the rich sometimes, who do not fear God, will oppress the poor? Does God really care about the systems of the world and the systems in the church? Because the church sometimes is as guilty as the world. Does he really care? Where is the God of justice? This time round, the answer is not he will come. The answer is he has come. The God of justice has come. In the light of the Lord Jesus, he has come. Let me read a few verses for you and then we will finish and share in the Holy Communion. Look at Mark chapter 1. Don't turn there. You can just note it. Mark chapter 1 in verse 2, he begins by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And look at where he goes. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah and Malachi are saying the same thing. And what are they saying? Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And look at verse 4. John appeared. John the Baptist. And elsewhere, we are told that John wore a camel, uh, a leather belt, and, 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 and all that, and then ate locusts and wild honey. What is he telling us? He is telling us about the fashionable design of Elijah. That's how Elijah dressed up. And so when John the Baptist appeared, this is the Elijah-like figure who goes ahead of the Lord. 
the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, he has come. When the Lord said to Malachi, I will come, now he says to us, I have come. I have come in Jesus. Again, verse 6, just to make the same point. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore leather belt around his waist and locust and wild honey. Elijah-like figure. This is the person. And he preached saying, after me, verse 7, comes he who is mightier than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop low and untie. I am not the one. I'm only the voice. I'm the one who goes ahead of the Lord. So if you are the voice, then who is the Lord that we should look forward to? And then Mark tells us in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Brothers and sisters, the Lord, our Lord, has come in the person of the Lord Jesus. But the question of injustices still remain. So let's not cover that up. The Lord Jesus has come, but there is injustice. So what did he do when he came? Let me take you over. I know time is gone, but let me take you over to Mark chapter 11. You see what he did, the Lord Jesus. If you think of him as meek and mild and, you know, this soft guy. Listen, Mark chapter 11 and verse 15 to 19. Where did, we, where did uh, Malachi say that when the Lord comes, he will go? Tell me. To the temple, right? And they came to Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it in a den of robbers and the chief priests. And the chief priests and the scribes had it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because of the crowd. The crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when evening came, he went out of the city. He comes, he comes into the temple, the Lord, and then he passes judgment. What Jesus was doing in the temple was to judge his people. He destroyed their style of worship. This hypocritical, religious worship, paying God lip services. And yet your heart is far away from him. He says, I will destroy. So long as we have this building here, our people will continue like this. So he comes and then he changes that. He judges that. Oh, but Lord, we still have injustices in our world. So what did he do about the injustices that we have staring into our faces? Two things. Two things. If you want to realize, if you want to see that God takes sin seriously, and particularly injustice in our world seriously, look to the cross. Look to the cross of Jesus. When the Lord came into his temple, the place of worship, the way he destroyed sin, and the way he destroyed and came against injustice was to ascend the cross. Because at the cross, God unleashed all his justice on sin. God judged sin on Jesus. He took that upon himself. 
Sin was judged and destroyed finally and decisively at the cross. The Lord has come into his temple and he has dealt with it. And it is on the cross when God pours out his wrath against the world's injustice on his son. And he bore it and he paid the sin and the injustices of all who put their faith in him. Oh, for those who will not put their faith in him, they will bear it someday. They will bear the wrath. They will bear the consequences of it someday. Oh, but the cross we understand. But how is it that we still have injustices with us? How is it that we continue in these ways and it appears God is unconcerned? My brothers and sisters, the cross gives us the assurance that one day the Lord will return. The Lord Jesus will return, and when he returns, he will deal with it. What he has dealt with on the cross will be finally and fully and completely implemented. There is no injustice under the sun that has not been dealt with under the cross, and that will not be dealt with when he returns. There is no sin that would go unrecognized and undealt with and punished. So why is he still allowing this? Finally, let me take you back to Malachi and let's finish it. Why is he? Lord, why does it appear that you are still delaying? What is going on here? Let me read for you Malachi 3 and verse 6 and verse 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But why is the Lord seem to be, it seems, that these things carry on still? He says that it's an opportunity for people to return. This is an opportunity to turn. If anybody is alive today, that person is a perpetrator, that is a carrying on, a promoter of any form of sin, any form of injustice, and you are still alive. Don't think you are smart. You have the opportunity to repent. Return to me, he says. If we are here and we are playing empty religion, our words take on Jesus and we talk on his name, but our deeds are so contrary to the gospel. He says, the reason you still are alive is not because you are able to lure everybody. It's because he's given you the opportunity to return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Peter is explicit, and I'll read it to finish. This same point that Malachi is making. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 to 10. Listen to what Peter says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. 2,000 years ago, we said he will return. When is he returning? And even Christians become cynical about the Lord's return. And then we stop talking about it. Maybe he will not. Maybe this Christianity crampo. Maybe. Maybe the unbelievers are enjoying more than we are. Sadly depriving ourselves of all kinds of things. Is the Lord really returning? When? We are dying and we are, uh, people are being born, and the world carries on as usual. The Lord is not slow 
as we determine slowness. Do not overlook this fact. Let me go back a little bit. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So if you think Jesus has wasted the cross, the cross is an opportunity for repentance. The reason we carry on is an opportunity for repentance. You don't have to pay for your sin. It has been paid for on the cross. If you turn to Christ by faith and repent and surrender everything to him, the judgment remains at the cross. If you refuse and you continue to kick against Christ and the gospel, the judgment remains on you. And on the second time of his return, we will see that Jesus is no joke. All the wrongs will be righted and the injustices will be justiced. Let's pray. Our Father, we um, thank you. We pray that you help us to take a second look at what the coming of our Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago has done and the opportunity that exists between that first coming and the second coming that we might turn, we might turn, we might turn to him and offer him true worship in repentance and faith. Help us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>